This podcast is brought to you by the new MG Herbs book, The Gut Blueprint. Check it out online at www.mgherbs.com and order your copy now. My name is Melissa Gearing and I am the Naked Naturopath. Thanks for listening in. Hi everybody, welcome back to The Naked Naturopath. Thanks so much for joining us today. I have a very special guest um, on the show and I'm really, really excited and slightly nervous to have a chat to her today because I've been following her work for a little while and um, we actually have the same initials for some of our work. Um, Welcome Steph. This is Steph Lowe from The Natural Nutritionist, um, so TNN, like The Naked Naturopath. Um, from Melbourne. Um, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be here too. It's so exciting when you find somebody who, you know, really just makes sense to you and follows the same philosophies and, you know, has a, has a very similar approach in what they do um, and is very, you know, successful with it. So when I saw what you were doing, I, I just had to have a chat to you and I'm so glad you agreed to come on the podcast. Of course. Looking forward to chatting more. Um, now, I thought we could just start maybe if you wanted to, you know, tell us a little bit about what you do in, in Brighton and, um, you know, how you kind of come, come to begin it, I guess, begin your journey yeah. with that. Yeah, for sure. Yes, I mean, I've always had an interest in health from a very young age, Um, but unfortunately I took that a little bit too far in my teenage years and I dived very heavily into calorie counting and low-fat eating Um, and, you know, I, I developed a really unhealthy relationship with food, unfortunately, and it was back in that era, especially when calorie counting was so huge and that was like the be-all and end-all from a health and wellness point of view. Um, but I guess the blessing was that it really developed my passion to, to study health and wellness at a tertiary level. And, you know, unfortunately, I was able to turn that around um, and teach what I had learned along the way with others. So I have an undergraduate degree in human movement and a postgraduate degree in nutrition. So I decided that I wanted to set up the natural nutritionist to teach others that there was a better way to health and wellness. And certainly that real food is the most significant choice that we can make, the most important choice that we can make (laughs) for our health and wellness. And the good news is is that you don't have to ever calorie count Mm -hmm. and that low-fat products belong in the bin. So that was where it all started (laughs) from my own personal experience um, and my passion to show others that you can, you know, have a beautiful relationship with food um, and that it doesn't need to be about restriction or dieting. So I started the company in 2011 and you're right, we're based in Brighton in uh, Melbourne And we work with quite a wide variety of people. So we certainly have, you know, um, families and people that are interested in in optimising their health with real food, whether it is for fat loss or for gut health or for, you know, whatever underlying um, sort of value or goal that individual has. Um, But we also have quite a lot of athletes that we work with that – those that are very much interested in moving away from our conventional and dogmatic guidelines in the sports nutrition space, which are very carbohydrate heavy and 
very, you know, geared towards sugar burning, which I'm sure we'll cover today is certainly not optimal from a health performance Mm -hmm. or athletic longevity point of view. So we work with lots of athletes, um, in particular endurance athletes, um, and I'm just living the dream. I absolutely love what I do, and I'm so grateful that this is what I get to call work. It's so exciting to, you know, hear you say that, you know, I think that a lot of the time if you almost if you haven't come from a point a point where you have uh, had trouble or struggle or, um, you know, been through that process where you had to find something different than the norm, um, that kind of develops your passion. And if you haven't had that, like a lot of people I talk to have, have had that personal experience in some way or another that has driven them to then do what they love and, and made them very good at what they do too. Um, so for me, you know, I kind of translated my negative food stuff when I was a teenager now into a really positive way to share that with people and, you know, write the cookbooks and, and teach nutrition and, and, and teach them, teach the general public that there is a different way, uh, than, you know, what our Australian guidelines are saying and, and that it is possibly, uh, you know, I say possibly with little quote things, it is possibly the better way to move forward for most people, uh, chronic health disease wise, athlete wise, all that kind of stuff. When I was, you know, prepping, I just like to write a few notes when I'm going to talk to someone on the podcast. I actually wrote two pages for you. So okay. I, I'm very excited. And, you know, like, you know, when two foodies get together and they start talking about, you know, especially two foodies who love high fat, you know, there's so much yeah. we can talk about. And, um, yeah, usually I write like a few dot points. Two pages came out. So I'm very excited to chat to you about all of that stuff. Um the the client uh the athlete client stuff is really interesting and this is something that uh is a big part of your business i've noticed and your new book that you um have released the the and i guess that low carb high fat diet um is a way that nutritionists have moved forward with you know how we prescribe food but is still an alternative you know, kind of prescription to the general public and to dietitians, to what dietitians do and what the general doctors kind of recommend. Um, how did you kind of formulate a plan around that and, and come across it? Yeah, great question. I mean, first things first, when we use the template of JERF, just eat real food, mm-hmm. we are inherently lower carbohydrate because we're obviously not having to meet those guidelines of the six to 11 serves of whole grains per day. And we're certainly not, you know, following that conventional food pyramid prescription so you know i like to really emphasize the the jerf side first because lchf can be a little bit overwhelming and it's it's confusing so you know part of what we'll do today is obviously to to break down some of the myths and misconceptions around lchf because you know it's huge at the moment but there's a lot of um, um confusion around is lchf ketosis you know do i have to be having 20 grams of carbohydrates per day and it it kind of to me coming across as you know when the individuals you know going via dr google they're unfortunately landing on 20 grams of carbohydrates a day which i don't believe is suitable to many people at all and that's the best thing about lthf low carb high fat is that it's this beautiful sliding scale Mm -hmm. that we can tailor to the individual so, yes, it has fantastic prescription for metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes and obesity, and 20 grams a day would be 
you know, 20 grams of carbohydrate per day would be a great place to start because these people have carbohydrate intolerance or insulin resistance mm-hmm. and they just need to remove or significantly reduce the refined carbohydrates especially um, and manage their overall intake to heal their, their health conditions. But the more active you are and the more metabolically healthy you are, the more carbohydrates you can eat. Now, I'm not talking about 600 grams a day, which is what the food pyramid <laughs> would actually calculate to be, but I'm talking about firstly whole food carbohydrates, so predominantly fruit, starchy veggies, and maybe a little bit of quinoa rice and buckwheat if that's your individual um, preference. But, you know, it might be 50 grams of carbohydrates a day to start to just assess the individual's carbohydrate tolerance or intolerance and kickstart the fat adaptation process. But most people land at, you know, 100 or 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, but it's always relative. It's relative to the individual, their genetics, their you know, metabolism, their metabolic goals, um, and, you know, their, their current um, current weight. You know, if you've got a fat loss goal, then that will change how much you need to be consuming as well. Definitely. I'll clarify for our collaborative TNN listeners, Jerf is Just Eat Real Food, which is a, you know, fantastic philosophy and, again, something that is, um, you know, the basis of, like, you know, it just makes sense, right? Just eat real food and should be the basis of all diets, really. Um, and when you mention your scaling of, you know, LCHF, the individualization of any diet is so important. And that's why that pyramid and, and that, you know, that traditional approach to everybody needs to fit into this square or the plate now, you know, is not always going to work for everybody. And, but may also, on the other hand, work for some people. Um, you know, so it's really difficult until you sit down one-on-one with someone, depending on their goals, depending on their needs, you know, and like you said, how much are they moving? What kind of exercise are they doing? Um, it's really difficult to Dr. Google a perfect diet for any one person, right? Absolutely. But a few key points that I think our listeners will find, um, quite useful is to think about firstly, that your carbohydrate intake is relative to your output. Mm -hmm. So you need less on days where you're more sedentary and vice versa. And then secondly, your carbohydrate intake is relative to your intensity. So if you're doing a lot of walking and yoga, that's fantastic and that's a beautiful form of exercise. But you actually need less carbohydrates because those activities are aerobic in nature where we're designed to burn fat to fuel those sessions versus strength training with heavy weights, sprint sessions, um, you know, velodrome if you're a cyclist, anything with that higher heart rate means that you're using or utilizing, oxidizing a greater percentage of carbohydrate. So you need to eat more. Does that make sense? Definitely. Somewhere along the way, I kind of started talking to my clients about working in and working out in reference to exercise. So for me, like the yoga, the Pilates, you know, those kind of things, they're very much working in. They don't require as much output, if you like. So you don't require as much, yeah, carbohydrate or that type of high-intensity fuel. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, totally makes sense. Love that. Do you find that people, you know, that you see or, you know, the general public, are you still fighting the fat fear like that, you know, people are so scared to eat fat still? Yeah, I am. Look, yeah. it's improved significantly. <laughs> like I always say this, when I first started 
a natural nutritionist. I was just a myth buster. Like that's what I did. Yeah. People would come to me and I'd have to, you know, basically get down and beg them to believe me that <laughs> eggs would give them heart disease and that these were the most nutrient-dense food on the yeah. planet. Um, and with the real food revolution that we've seen over the last five years now, it's made my job a bit easier in that regard. But it's still really challenging because that saturated fat, cholesterol and heart health myth is ingrained in us and it has been for the last five years, uh, sorry, five decades, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's really challenging, especially when someone's working with a conventional GP. So they come to me and we're getting them to eat, you know, a beautiful balance of healthy whole fats, yeah. um, including saturated fats like coconut oil, butter, grass-fed, and um, even some free-range bacon. Yeah. Um, God forbid, but then they go to their doctor and they're getting like a blood lipid panel and their total cholesterol is high and the first thing the doctor says is cut out the butter, cut out the bacon and the poor client, the poor person is sort of frozen in the middle with this real real confusion as yeah. to um, who to believe essentially and what's healthy. So the, the GERF perspective is so good in this instance as well because if we look at foods like um, grass-fed butter or avocado, you know, these are very much... Um, you know, either in their natural state or very close to the natural state with a low degree of human interference. So, you know, that perspective really helps people to break down what is healthy versus, you know, when we might be told to eat margarine instead, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is just a chemical concoction full of, um, you know, artificial ingredients and it's made in a lab. Yes. So to answer your question, like, yeah, it's still challenging, especially LCHF because it is that upside-down plate where you're getting them to pretty much turn things upside-down, right? They've come off a a diet of toast and sandwiches and pasta with muesli bars and and fruit juice, then, you know, it is going to be a big overhaul for that that individual. Um, But people aren't sort of, you know, generally following just a standard Australian pyramid these days. I think with the real food revolution, there's so much information out there that there's generally been some degree of changes and they're starting from a much better place, but there's still often a lot of refinement to do and education around what they need to eat so they don't have that real fear anymore. Yeah, definitely. When I started teaching um, for a local college, I... I was really, really nervous, you know, I was going to go in and teach all these, you know, women who are generally older than me because, like, for naturopathy, you tend to come to it later in life. It's not offered at uni, you know, all those kind of things. So it's something that people find. Um, And so I'd I'd stand up in front of a a room full of, um, you know, uh, middle-aged women, I guess, and um, you start teaching them. And as I started doing that and then coming back to my clinic, I realized it was just the same thing. It was, you know, I'm educating people one-on-one in the clinic and I was going to teach, you know, it's just different topics, but essentially we're educators, right? Like that's a big part of the job. Um, And I I really, you know, I preach to my clients a lot of the time that if a food is low fat, essentially it's not really a real food. So it doesn't fit into that Jeff perspective because it's been um, tampered with to some degree, (laughs) like you know, that fat is such an important component. And if we take that out, we lose, um, you know, vitamin D, for example, in, in the some of our fat-soluble vitamins and stuff like that. And it changes the way that our body sees that food and uses that food then. Um, so for me, a low-fat food is not a real food. 
you like. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> it's a scientific experiment usually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but on the metabolic side of things, I think the message that I want people to remember is that you know, to move away from that fat makes you fat message, yeah. we've got to remember that fat actually makes you burn fat. Yes, yep, absolutely. So that can be a really helpful soundbite or mantra for someone that's still feeling a little bit fearful of these foods in their natural state. Well, because fat makes you fat is such a logical, you know, um, way to think and that's it that's why it was um i think so well taken by the general public when it was marketed that makes you fat oh it makes sense if i eat fat i'll get fat you know but yeah like like you said fat definitely helps you to shed excess fat um and all of the other components that it helps in the body as well um but have you found that the that fear of fat I'm finding now in the clinic is being replaced by a fear of sugar. And if that's the case, is it just a trend that, you know, different parts of food will be picked on, have been in the past and will be in the future and we just have to move with the times and continue to educate people on that whole food approach really? I'm seeing the same thing. I'm definitely seeing carbophobia in someone that's taking the LCHF message too far. You know what I think it is? I think that we're so ingrained in thinking that it needs to be hard. So if we go back to our (laughs) calorie counting days, you know, we we have to be hungry, we have to be counting calories, we have to be basically sending ourselves crazy with like, you know, low fat, you know, irregular hormones, poor blood sugar control, you know, just that it's got to be difficult and we have to restrict to achieve our goals. Then when someone says to you that you can eat fats and you can still eat, um, you know, that you actually also can eat a degree of carbohydrates at that point in time, especially for the athletes, it seems too easy. It's almost too good to be true. So I think people are looking for how to make it hard on the other side of the coin. So, all right, if low carb is good, then no carb must be better, which is a big mistake, especially because we know that we need carbohydrates to fuel the Krebs cycle, which is how we oxidize fats in the first place. So you can actually go too low carb and impair fat burning. Yes. So you've got to be mindful not to try and take things too far. And food is not to be extreme. Like it's not mm-hmm. anything that needs to be restrictive and deprivational and diet-like. I just think we're getting used to that because yes. we've only known the other way for so long. And, you know, that 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 whole idea is um, ingrained in many different ways as human beings where, you know, we're all or nothing, we're black and white and I'm forever trying to get people into that grey area with their diet. But also with supplements and things like this now because people, you know, they want the, you know, the krill or the whatever, glucosamine or whatever at the strongest strength because if the glucosamine is good, it must be better if I get it stronger and then I'll pay more and then, you know, they'll get a bigger tub and they'll take more and people are making themselves ill with um, nutritionals as well and, and, you know, herbs and things like that. So I see it in, in a few different ways with, with that philosophy, I guess, that thought pattern that more is better and, um, you know, if I can go harder and if I can make it more difficult for myself, <laughs> you know. But it is, it's, it's, it's such a simple process when, when it comes down to it. I'm always telling people 
like let's just get some real food back in and I'm nearly always adding food to people's diet diets because they're not generally eating enough overall so you know that idea that weight loss still comes from uh, reduction in overall calories I guess is still pertinent in most people's mind so if they don't eat they'll lose weight which in fact is not the case yeah, well, especially when we think about how to optimize your metabolism and that's, you know, to give it enough nutrition and to give it the fuel to prevent that storage mentality, which we see in someone that has a long-term history of calorie counting where their body is just really inefficient. They yes. just store whatever they consume because their body thinks they're in this sort of famine or starvation mode and mm. their metabolism, their metabolic rate slows and their digestion slows and the vicious cycle continues. So, yeah, eating more food is also part of the equation, which should be music to most people's ears. Yeah. But, again, if it's a lifetime of I think restriction, I scare people with it, it can but... be very overwhelming. Yeah, definitely. I actually had a note here, like, um, you know, that just about your Jeff approach, which I, I love that you've you've made it, you know, uh, just Jeff, which is so catchy and so simple and I just think it's so smart and the thing about it is it's such a simple philosophy when you put it that way but you know people aren't wanting simple solutions all the time and the other thing is people may see this as difficult because we are so far removed from real food sometimes that it's hard to tell you know or it's hard to understand what we mean when we say just eat real food like people go, well, what do you mean? Like I, I buy it in the supermarket, um, you know, and I read on your website you had some great little notes about, you know, turning the boxes over and reading the ingredients and making sure there's no numbers or words that we don't know. Um, but people find it difficult to eat real food. And that, that blows my mind. <laughs> I think it's the cognitive dissonance that we have between our health and what food can do for that you know if we think about our great grandparents obviously they ate real food because there was nothing else yeah but we fell into this trap of it being a low priority so therefore convenience was um you know the answer so when you don't make time to to eat and when you don't really think about the fact that everything you you put in your mouth shapes your entire health then you know of course you're going to just quickly grab something or rely on packets and boxes and that's where people get to and therefore when they first learn about jerf again it can be quite overwhelming because they don't see that they have any time in their life to change their habits and their habitual behaviors with food mm. but you know for most people they the penny eventually drops whether it happens you know straight away or if it takes some 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 time I, I think the evolution is what's important because you don't need to jump into a completely jerf template overnight yeah but you can certainly identify where the predominant packets and boxes are and make some small changes there Definitely. but not having time is a bs excuse that you're not prioritizing it enough because you can find time if it's a higher value of yours, which it should be. I mean, it has to be. Absolutely. I mean, otherwise that time is just spent with you or me or the doctor or in a hospital or, you know, uh, trying to pick up, pick up all the different medications that you need or <laughs> whatever it might be that the long-term health detriments of, um, you know, 
eating food that's not really food and that our body doesn't really recognize and it doesn't communicate to ourselves I guess is yeah scary yeah and it's it's staying away from that the sickness model that we have in healthcare in Australia so understanding that the while the easy way out might be to go to your doctor and get a pill that's obviously a band-aid solution and not addressing the underlying cause and and certainly not you know going to um improve your health whereas moving into caring about real food i mean you can totally manage can already have or prevent it hopefully and preferably and i watch the change in people um mental health is something that i um you know deal with a lot in the clinic and i herbs are fantastic for it but when we look at the diet and start to put some time in to prepare food um, it changes people's the way they think and, and the way that they their day plays out. Not only is it blood, blood you know, stabilizing their blood sugar and you know, um, providing a really nice you know energy curve throughout the day, so that they don't have those drops that affect their mood, but they feel better because they've they've made their own food and they're prepared for their day and they've spent some time in the kitchen, which can also be a mindful practice. Um, you know, it, if we make time and then start to embrace that, it can really become a part of life, a, a lifestyle, you know, decision for the benefit of them, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Really. I was um, watching a documentary, oh, I don't know, a few months ago and um, <clears throat> it really kind of, you know, I've always been like, oh, I hate that box food, mm, bad box food, you know, like somebody had made it to hurt people and this documentary is all about how the Kellogg's brothers kind of came along and and saved a generation of people because there was a lack of food you know during the great depression and and times when um there was famine and not enough food to feed the masses and you know I just thought that's you know that's what we needed at that time and that's so amazing and and all those things but now we need to move back to the other way because there's not um, you know, a lack of food and, and um, yeah, it was just this really interesting kind of different, it sh- shifted my mindset on the box food. <coughs> Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, and it's definitely how we got, got there <coughs> with, the, with the requirements for that mm. cheap carbohydrate, readily available fuel source mm. decades and decades ago. Absolutely. But, I mean... We also need to think about the science and how we landed there, which has been very clearly disproven. Yes. So, you know, that's what's interesting about the jerf argument as well. Like most people that meet me think I've fallen out of the tree for the first meeting (laughs) until we can sort of really break down the principles and show them how, you know, how much common sense there actually is, but also that science has evolved so far in the last five decades. But it's just about exposing people to that research to give them some proof if they're feeling a little bit resistant or sceptical. And you do have some um, great research links and articles on your website too, which I've been saving and and reading because it's just like that's what people want. They want to know that what we're saying is evidence-based just like what, um, you know, they believe their doctor is, that that path that oh, their doctor is Oh, absolutely. That's the thing with the conversation with, Conventional medical practitioners, you know, to to their credit, they've obviously done um, a significant amount of study, but for the majority of them, it was some time ago now. So 
I think the, that, you know, staying up to date with the current research and a big part of what we do at The Natural Nutritionist is to share that information because it's, it's changed. I mean, we once thought the world was flat, right? So <laughs> it's not dissimilar in the nutrition space that we once thought that saturated fat would kill us and that eggs would give us heart disease. But now we can't ignore the research around refined carbohydrates and sugars, um, and and that's what we have to teach everyone to to realise has changed. Absolutely. So as you know, I'm also a herbalist um, and a naturopath, and so my herbs play a big part. I see herbs as food, essentially, just you know, kind of like really concentrated. Uh, forms and I, I really believe that they help to rebalance and pro- provide a lot of nutrients and stuff like that. Um, for you coming from a food perspective, do you still think that there is a place for minerals, supplements, nutritionals, those kind of things in people that may need extra help? Yeah, absolutely. It just needs to be prescribed in the right way. Like I'm not a fan of you know, walking in blindly to the health food aisle or supplement section of the supermarket and just grabbing what's on sale or, you know, big bottles of oxidised fish oil that might be twelve ninety five <laughs> for 200 capsules. I yeah. think, you know, it's got to be individual and, and prescriptive. So, I mean, herbs are slightly different and that's not my specialty, but we, we you know, encourage all our clients to get quite a comprehensive blood test so we can look at what their actual requirements yeah. are and how to optimise their health. And, you know, food will always be priority number one, but certainly supplements and herbs can form a really well-rounded protocol um, secondary to, you know, dietary changes. Absolutely. Um, But it's about the quality, obviously. Absolutely. I'm always, Mm. you know, educating clients. If if it's, you know, if you get a supplement that's probably less than $20, I say it's not really worth your money, (laughs) which is very generalized, but... You know, we there was a study that came out of New Zealand. Thirty different fish oils were looked at um, for their quality. Uh, two, I think it was two or three years ago now. And my podcast listeners are probably like, "Oh, Mel, you say this all the time," but I just think it's a really good example because none of them were therapeutically active, and over half of them were um, full full of free radicals, so they were completely oxidized. So they actually do damage to the body, and the regulations in Australia are getting better and, you know, are strict in some ways, but supermarket shelf supplements also have the added, you know, possible issues of traveling, um, you know, and how long are they sitting there and, yeah, what ingredients are they using um, is also really, really important. So I, I just think there's no point in taking it if it isn't scripted for you from somebody who knows what they're doing and it's a good quality, you know, from that perspective, you know, there's so many good supplements, but it has to be for you. Like you said, you do a blood test. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the, you know, the cost can be a bit of a challenge for some people, but I mean, you've got to think about the, the, you know, bang for your buck, so to speak. You're obviously wanting, you want to take something that you know is clinically proven. So, you know, and it's, also a preventative from a health point of view. So I think we've got to move away from looking for, you know, where we can sort of cut costs on every area of our health because the the investment that we make now is obviously going to save us money in the long run so we're not going to be needing to fall into the sickness model that we have and, and to, go, to go to the doctor and to need prescriptions and so on and so forth. 
Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, I have a lot of people coming in and they'll be on five, six, seven different supplements. Say they're 20 bucks a pop. They may only need one good quality one, um, you know, for their needs uh, that might cost them $50. You know, so it's also that individualized perspective and, and getting it prescribed for you, I think, yeah, definitely is um, super important. But we can do a, a, a lot of our work with food and <laughs> definitely where I would rather do a lot of my work. Um, do you have supplements in your clinic? And, and I guess why, why would you use them? Um, who would you use them for? Yeah, so we use practitioner-only supplements like Metagenics, Biocyticals, Nutrition Care, and Orthoplex. Um, and, you know, obviously it's very individual, but um, a really, really common example is magnesium, which we mm-hmm. know is very de- depleted in our soils in Australia and interfered with by our modern agricultural practices. Um, and magnesium is beautiful for managing things like stress, exercise recovery, sleep, you know the deal. And I think that can be a beautiful supplement that can can be easily integrated into a real food template. Um, we get great results for even just simply balancing out a menstrual cycle with yeah. adding magnesium, which is such a simple thing to be able to do. Um, but, I mean, so many other examples. We look at a lot of... Um, genetic polymorphisms, so people that have certain mutations that Mm -hmm. need the right sort of supplementations to support their genes. Um, And even things like with with athletes, just from a performance point of view, you know, they're not obviously looking to be just inside a reference range that is telling you where you're not sick. We're talking about optimising health. So, you know, an athlete that's maybe training for an Ironman that's doing 20 or 25 hours a week, um, is likely going to need a bit more support. So supplements definitely have their place there as well. Yeah, great. You talk about um, athletes, and I know that's a big part of your, your business and what you do, and like I said before, you've got your book, The Real Food Athlete, um, but you would you just use GERF with them or would you use it in the general public as well and for healthy populations and, and other, you know, do you see other people as well? Yeah, definitely. So we we use GERF for everybody, and then the so the LCHF template is what what we scale. So if it's a family like mm-hmm. who's just starting, then GERF will definitely be where we start start them from, and that may be enough. Mm-hmm. There still needs to be an education around carbohydrates because that could otherwise form a big part of the plate when we we like to add that to the plate last. Um, and, I mean, a lot of people with um, even when we say general public, like from a – we see a lot of clients that have a fat loss goal. So LCHF is wonderful for them because they, they're, they're most of the time they've done every single diet under the sun, Weight Watchers, Light and Easy, Michelle Bridges, they've calorie counted their entire life. Um, and LCHF, whilst they might not be eating too frequently, they're still getting an abundance of nutrients in more calories than they've ever consumed, but because they're manipulating their macronutrients, they're getting their metabolism back and they're able to burn fat. Mm-hmm. Um, they've also got great blood sugar control and they're no longer hungry. <coughs> so they get this sense of freedom that's really important in a fat loss environment, yeah. especially for someone that's got a long history of dieting who's uh, unfortunately their relationship with food is is usually very poor. Yes, definitely. So LCHF has amazing application um, 
But, yeah, just obviously really individualized because I don't want to see everyone diving into ketosis. I yeah. really think that's <laughs> something that we need to avoid. And one thing you mentioned was fat adaptation. I'm just um, in the final edits of my, my book at the moment. Um, and, you know, something that I've written on a lot of the recipes is if you haven't had a high-fat diet before or, or you haven't tried this type of food before, just start slow. Because people do need to adapt, um, you know, and I've had a few clients who've made themselves sick <laughs> with, with too much fat because they've taken what I've said and, and, you know, gone, oh, well, I need to add all these fats into my diet, you know, and just probably gone in too hard too fast. Do you find that that happens? Yeah, I think we've just got to be really mindful that nutrition is really individual and that step change approach is what we need to do like it's how we need to approach things so yeah I mean we for the individual we give them portions so we sort of break down what their plate needs to be built from and you know a lot of people will start by simply just adding one portion of a healthy fat to each meal yeah so that's going to completely change their blood sugar control and their satiety and their cravings and their 330-itis and so on um, and then we can start to manage things like, you know, their overall calories dependent on their output um, and the, the individual variations from there. But it does take a bit of trial and error, absolutely. Yeah. But I think that's a good thing. I mean, it's not, a, it's not black or white. It yeah. absolutely has to be shades of grey, as I Definitely. know you agree. And um, what's your basic um, LCHF breakdown I was reading? Because you said that the general uh, dietetics approach is 30%. Where do you start from with the carbohydrates? Um, is it like 15, 20? Yeah, so for, for men we do 15% carbohydrate, mm-hmm. um, usually 20% protein and 65% fat. Yeah. Females will give it slightly more carbohydrates. They'll be um, minimum of 20%, so 20, 20, 60 from a breakdown of carbs, proteins and fat. Yeah, great. So very different. Um, everyone can, like that's the starting point yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, just to get the ball rolling and then yeah we can put the individual variations on that yeah I love it I had a client a little while ago who uh, was an elite athlete Olympic uh, level and was almost surviving on pure carbohydrates and so I you know I wrote down all the notes for her to get approved because she's under uh, care you know being in in an Olympic team and stuff like that um, you know, all food-based because they didn't want any supplements and, and that's all fine, no herbs or anything, all food-based, gave them some options. She needed she needed protein. She was hungry all the time. She needed fat. So I wrote down a bunch of stuff and she wasn't allowed to do any of it. Do you have that barrier when you work with athletes? It can be really hard, especially because, you know, the AIS and the VIS still have our dogmatic carbohydrate and carbohydrate-loading guidelines there. But athletes are really savvy. You know, a lot of athletes, um, you know, they're looking for that performance edge. They've either had a really bad experience of hitting the wall in training and racing. They've had terrible gastrointestinal upset from trying to consume, you know, 300 calories or 90 grams of carbs an hour. Um, there's usually a pretty significant reason why they've you know, uncovered that there is another way. Yeah. Um, most people these days are coming to me because they've had some of these problems um, and they want to transform their metabolism. So mm. it's definitely less challenging, um, but we're still going to be, um, yeah, fighting these 
government bodies and dietitians who will stand up on their high horse and um, basically justify their prescription with old science. I mean, especially with athletes, all of the science is done on sugar-burning athletes. So, of course, carbohydrates are going to appear to be beneficial for performance. You can't put an athlete who's not fat-adapted onto LTHF and expect to see benefits. So a lot of the science is either archaic or incorrect. Um, You know, even this week on social media, or it might have been last week, but, you know, fairly recently on social media there was the paper published on elite walkers Mm -hmm. and how a lower carbohydrate was detrimental to performance. Yeah. But they've only been eating that way for three weeks. So they're sugar-burning <laughs> athletes whose petrol source has been completely shut off. How do you yeah. think they're going to feel? They're going to feel lethargic. They're going to lose that top-end speed in, in that short-term scenario. They're going to be hungry, so on and so forth. So we've got to get the athlete fat-adapted first to, to be able to appreciate the benefits of real food and optimising your metabolism and that's where the science needs to be. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see some studies there very soon since, you know, Jeff Bolek published the FASTA study in 2016. Yeah, perfect. I um, was really interested in your thoughts on fasting because this is something that, you know, it's always been um, on and off popular. I spent six years in health food and, you know, it was probably – there was always a book on it and people were interested probably on a monthly basis. You would kind of get questions and things like that. But – I feel like at the moment it's for some reason researched, which, you know, does happen with um, diets and things like that, um, you know, especially 5.2. I'd love to just, yeah, hear your thoughts on it and, and if you use it, what you think. I think there's some amazing benefits of fasting and certainly some really well-rounded, peer-reviewed research to support the health and long-term benefits of fasting. Um but I am really mindful of its prescription in the extreme sense, which is, again, what we're used to yes. in the nutrition space. It has to be hard. We have to be hungry. It needs to be a real slog. And 5-2, don't get me wrong, there's science there. Um, and I think Michael Mosley is doing some amazing things for the space. But I don't meet a lot of people who successfully only eat 500 calories a day. <laughs> And that's the issue, right? We have to factor in. We can't ignore the importance of the macronutrients that we eat and certainly food quality can't be ignored. Um, unless you're, you know, very well adapted and you've got a great relationship with food, we end up eating 500 calories and then binging or choosing poor quality quick fix food on the alternate days because, you know, we're, we're feeling so depleted yeah, and definitely. our blood sugar is um, perhaps not so well controlled. But intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding has some amazing benefits. I think it's the best of both worlds, in my opinion, because you get all the metabolic benefits of restricted, restricting your eating window you optimise your fat metabolism, you support your telomeres, you look after your inflammation, so you therefore manage your long-term health, but it's really sustainable. Yeah. So, you know, a 13-hour fast or an overnight fast, that just means an earlier dinner and or a later breakfast is a really beautiful place for people to start. 
it's very easy to integrate into a busy life. Um, it's very, very sustainable. Uh, and there's a lot of amazing research on the benefits of eating in line with your circadian rhythm. Yeah. So yeah. not eating after sunset and not eating before sunrise. Yeah. Um, but then it depends on the individual. You know, an 8 and 16 split, so 8 hours of eating and the 16-hour fast has been shown to have some really huge benefits for people with breast cancer and certainly uh, reducing the risk of breast cancer in women. So, you know, the the level or the length of the fast is quite individual depending Mm. on whether they're already healthy or whether they've got a metabolic condition or a chronic condition they're dealing with. Um, But I also think that, you know, day to day what being fat adapted allows is windows between your meals rather than having to eat every two hours and carry the muesli bar in your bag and have your head in the office lolly jar by 3.30, (laughs) you get these five-hour windows between meals where that's great for your digestion, it's great for your metabolism, it gives you that sense of freedom from food, and it's a mini fast. So you get these mini fasts between your main meals, you get a nice long overnight fast, and it basically happens indirectly as a result of what you put on your plate and the macronutrients that you choose to build your plate from. Yeah, such good points. You have a real gift of um, breaking it down in an easy way for people to understand, which I love. Um, something, when I started my food as medicine talk, I would try to explain that to people. Um, but, you know, I would use the research and I'd use all these big words and something that I've found, I say a lot, but I just don't think um, it makes sense is therapeutic nutrition. It makes sense to me, like fasting is therapeutic nutrition, like you mentioned. It's, um, you know, specific to maybe certain conditions for certain times, for different people at different stages of their life. And by therapeutic, I always kind of think short term. It's acute, you know, you use it as medicine. Um, And then you need to have like a really great kind of uh, base diet around that that suits you and and that's made for you. Um, But I just love how you talk about it and it makes sense you know, you can break it down really well, which I think is a gift. It's nice. Thank you. It's the same with <laughs> ketosis. You know, I, I am all for ketosis in a therapeutic setting. Yes, yeah. But I just don't want everyone to suddenly think that's the answer because exactly. if low-carb is good, then no-carb must be better, which is not yeah, the answer. Exactly. Um, I saw that you had a cleanse. Um, yeah. yeah, really cool. I I love a good cleanse. Um, and... I was wondering, you know, how often do you kind of recommend it and and how do you think that that toxic load plays a role, I guess, for people? Yeah, for sure. So our Back to Basics cleanse is founded in real food, but we do look at the next level with some practitioner-only supplements that mm-hmm. help accelerate the cleansing process. Um, as a general rule, one to two cleanses per year should be sufficient, but, yeah. again, that's quite relative to the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, toxin exposure definitely comes from living in capital cities. It comes from your exposure to pharmaceuticals, the types of food that you eat, what you put on your skin, your beauty regime. Like, There's lots of different factors. So everyone's got such different levels of their toxin exposure. So that can certainly shape the requirement for a cleanse. The food is the most important part, though. So for a lot of people, it's a really good reset after a holiday or Christmas or 
Easter or when they start to feel that, that they're derailing, they put themselves in this framework to bring things back to basic. So no packets and boxes. <laughs> We're just eating real food and they do two weeks or they do six weeks if they're super keen. But it really feeds the compliance. You know, the commitment to a meal plan and to taking morning and evening supplements is a really great incentive to get someone back in mm-hmm. the zone per se. Um, and we do, you know, specialized gut cleansers, which are really beautiful for someone that's having digestive conditions, which I'm sure you know are, are so common these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do liver cleansers and we do heavy metal detoxes. So chelation cleansers for those that are more exposed to whether they're living on a farm or whether it is historical from being on the oral contraceptive pill for 20 years, you know. So we really want to individualise that to the client so we can optimise what, you know, what their highest need is. But, I mean, again, it's it's still with the power of real food. So it can teach some great behavioural sides as well, like getting back in the kitchen and, Left, having leftovers for lunch the next day and doing your hour of power on a Sunday. So we're enforcing these habit, habits that will put you in you know, great stead moving forward. Yeah, kind of creating those long-term sustainable habits with a, a short-term um, wake-up, if you like. <laughs> it kicks up. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. The approach of, I mean, eating real food will naturally detoxify our body. It will naturally allow our, you know, our body is made to detoxify, essentially. We have the organs to do it, and, and real food helps it every single day. Um, so, you know, the fact that it's a once or twice thing a year I just think is fantastic because people do really think they need to be, you know, cleansing um, once, you know, once every uh, couple of months or, you know, even more often than that, which is not necessarily the case if we look after our bodies and, and give it the nutrients through real food that can talk to ourselves and tell them what they need to be doing and, you know, all those kind of things. So, yeah, I think that's perfect. Um, yeah, and I think it's just, just one last thing there. I, yeah. I think, you know, it's that perspective of that we can't neglect the basics. If you have those basic foundations mm-hmm. of real food and obviously hydration and sleep and stress management and managing your caffeine intake, if you have those basics in place, then, you know, what you're doing is you're looking after your health every day. You don't need to suddenly dive into a seven-day juice cleanse because of, you know, not having the the foundations, the building blocks in place. So that's what we teach our clients. Like Mm. it is actually quite basic when you look at what the pillars are. And obviously there's nuances around that. We can talk about fasting windows and we can tweak your macros and all that beautiful stuff. But the basics are where we find health. And, yeah, exactly. You're moving away from the all or nothing again. I'm going to be really unhealthy this week and I'm going to be super healthy next week. Like, you know, we just want a little bit of something in between every single day to maintain it and, yeah, allow our bodies to do what they're good at and all those kind of things. So I think that's beautiful. For sure. Um, Tell us what you've got upcoming. Yeah, so very exciting. I have been, or myself and my team have been, very busy in the kitchen creating a huge collection of LCHF recipes. We're launching a 12-week LCHF endurance program. So for all the endurance athletes that are currently sugar burning and knowing that they don't want to be consuming Gatorades and gels and they want to become a fat-adapted athlete, we've created an online program that guides you through that process. So week by week, 
how to optimize your metabolism, how to become a fat adapted athlete, and all the tips and tricks that you need along the way in terms of you know how to build your plate. So the day to day side of things that is obviously foundational, but then how to fuel for training and racing. So no more Gatorade, no more gels, real food recipes and products that you can use. And then what to do beyond 12 weeks, so how to make that a lifestyle. So it's about becoming a real food fat-adapted athlete. Um, and we're starting with the endurance space, um, but we're going to branch out from there in the very near future as well. Great. It sounds awesome. And, I mean, obviously if it's online, anyone in Australia could do it. You don't have to be in Melbourne. Well, it will be worldwide actually. Yeah, great. That's so exciting. Yeah. Really cool. Yeah, I can't wait. It's been a, a, a baby of mine this year, yeah. so it's um, it's been lots of fun, but can't wait to get it out there and, and share it with everybody. And is your is your book going well? How long has your book been out? Yeah, really well. Yeah, so we launched in September last year. Okay. Um, so, we're yeah, we're ticking along coming up, you know, well, not quite at a year, obviously, yeah. but... Um, <laughs> but yeah, going really well and people are just loving. I mean, you can pick it up and you can read it in an afternoon. Like we didn't include the in-depth science because that's been written. Like yeah. we, we know that exists. What it is is really practical. So we take the science and teach you how to build your plate, how to look after your gut and what to do in training and racing and what you actually need to be making in the kitchen. And people, you know, need that practical side of things because as we've been discussing, there's so much education out there, which I love. I don't love the, the Dr. Google prescription, but I love <laughs> the conversation that's happening. Yeah, yeah. That people get get paralyzed as to what they actually have to do to achieve that. Yeah. So we bridge the gap to give them the tools to implement it into their lifestyle so that they can be a real food athlete. And by the way, Anyone that moves is an athlete, so yes. you don't need to be an endurance athlete to eat real food. I hope that goes without saying, but even yogis need to be eating real food, and obviously activity should be a really big part of our health and wellness goals, and real food needs to match that to optimize your health today, but certainly tomorrow. I love it. I have had such a good time chatting with you. Me too. It's been fun. Oh, I really appreciate appreciate your time, and I think that um, we did really well to touch on so many different subjects <laughs> in our short time together. And um, I bet there'll be loads of questions. Um, so, where can um, people get a hold of you? Yeah, for sure. So, our online hub is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au, and you can certainly find out more about our book of the Real Food Athletes. Um, Instagram and Facebook is where we hang out daily. So that's all at The Natural Nutritionist. Um, any questions or comments, please come over and say hi. I'd love you guys to keep in touch. And, yeah, by all means, let me know how you're going. It would be great to connect. Yeah, and, I mean, they should remember it because, like I said, we're both the TNN, so <laughs> it's very easy. Yeah, for um, sure. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you again soon, I'm sure. Thank you.